Blog Talk Radio. Good morning and Happy New Year. <laughs> Welcome to Mama Chat's Mama Chat. I'm Megan Harvey, and I'm joined this morning by Julie Piper and Cynthia Liu, better known as Cinematic. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. How are you guys Hello. both doing? <laughs> Good, good. I was just saying that <clears throat> it's sort of countdown to John Beanergeddon, <laughs> so I'm not <laughs> as thrilled about that, but um, otherwise I had a good holidays and, you know, the New Year seems to be off to a decent start. I'm kind of so out of How about you, Jules? Yeah, I, I'm doing fine, although I have to say I'm... You know, all the the joy and cheer and merriness of the holidays have worn off because I'm just baffled, just absolutely baffled why people think it's a good idea to spend all this time on doing everything that was accomplished last year. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not like what was passed, for example, with health care reform. It's not like that was a single-party bill. Um, and I'm just I'm tired of the misrepresentation too. I'm tired of it being referred to as government health care, and I'm tired of it being referred to as you're not going to be able to control what doctor you see or when you see or what health care you get. I, I just it, it boggles my mind how people can stand up there and just so blatantly misrepresent what the health care reform is. Agreed. I think it's just shocking um, the way that lies have basically taken root. And I think, you know, I think 2008 we saw the upside, the the sort of rainbows and unicorns aspect of social media. But now 2010 we saw like the real dark, ugly side of social media, which is, you know, it gives a lie like incredible life. You know, what is that funny Mark Twain quote about how, you know, a, a, a lie can be halfway around the world while, you know, the truth is still trying to get up in the morning? <laughs> well, you, know, yeah. you get that a thousand, a millionfold with social media. And um, I sent uh, the Momocrats, um I sent the Momocrats this little uh uh, email that I got from um, John Boehner. I don't know why I'm on his email list, but I am. But anyway, um, he sent me, and so it's like this giant list of here's, you know, here I am on Twitter, here's my staff on Twitter, here's my Facebook page, this, that, the other thing, and it's like it's really kind of monstrous how the GOP has decided, you know, okay, they ate our lunch in 2008, and, and here's how we're really going to get our way back. And that includes you know, a fair, a huge amount, I would say, of social media astroturfing. Well, the question mm-hmm. is, how efficacious is it going to be in the end? Mm-hmm. I mean, having a big presence online doesn't equal influence. I mean, we can sit here and talk about GOP clout scores, uh, you know, till the cows come home. But at the end of the day, how effective is that going to be? I think what's, I, I think the thing that's concerning me right now is what I consider the under the rug. Uh, efforts going on where you've got these conservative uh, groups that are trying to put forth what looks like nonpartisan agendas, and they're using uh, social media to promote things like really emotional videos and things like that. You know, we thought it was really bad. Remember 100 years ago in the 90s when first health care reform came up and there was the uh, commercial with the elderly couple. Right. You know, we thought that we thought that was bad. 
let's multiply that by 10,000, and mm-hmm. that's what's floating around out there right now. And right. It, it just, you know, it's coming from sources. And, and I'm tired of saying people need to educate themselves. I do believe people need to educate themselves. But I think our leaders need to be held accountable for mm-hmm. when they libel, slander, and lie and mislead. Well, I think we were also looking at a media which, to my mind, is much less a fourth estate than it is a fifth column. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, who really benefited from Citizens United and that fire hose, no, excuse me, the Amazonian waterfall of undisclosed corporate money that that flooded into, you know, the elections process? I mean, it was really... TV stations all across the country, not so much the print media, but, you know, we've we've come to rely so much on television and broadcast mediums, you know, to really kind of, you know, put the, help put the debate across, so to speak. But unfortunately, we don't really have a media, a, media, a healthy media that is, is going to do that. I mean, I think we've got, you know, TV, TV networks that are looking at, you know, their bottom line and saying, oh, great, political ad money coming in. Great, you know. And are, are these really mm-hmm. going to be people who are going to bite the hand that feeds? Um, and I think the other thing that's really kind of dangerous, which I see more and more of with, um, again, tied to Citizens United money, you know, coming from right-wing billionaires, et cetera, is that, you know, you've got you've, – you've sort of had the Powell memo and the, and the growth of all these think tanks, et cetera, and I really see the social media component as being yet another outreach of that where you're just sort of pumping out this message on a daily basis, on a, you know, by-the-second basis – and there's really no counter. And I think that, you know, the good folks at Media Matters and, you know, uh, Stop Beck and all those efforts are are really important. Bless them. But by the same token, it's, I mean, it really does feel like you've got your finger in the dam and <laughs> you're really, you've got this, you know, you're kind of outgunned uh, or outflooded by uh, something that's, that's had 30 and 40 years to build. And now social media just becomes, you know, another way to amplify that message. Yeah, I, I I agree. Megan, what do you think? I I totally agree. It's kind of in the at the end of the day, sometimes it just kind of feels like shouting into nothing. What's <laughs> really getting <laughs> right. accomplished? You yeah. know what I mean? Just it's just shouting into nothing and not really. It, it doesn't feel like we're actually getting on the ground and moving and accomplishing. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I listened to a really interesting discussion. I, mm-hmm. I constantly go back to Tom Ashbrook and his show On Point. Um, they had Dr. Atal Gawande on yesterday talking about health care reform. Mm-hmm. He's a general and endocrine surgeon at Brigham and William, Women's Hospital in Boston, and also he's a professor at Harvard Medical School. Um, it, it's, you know, I mean, this is this is a guy who really knows what's what in modern health care and modern medicine. You know, he's... He's a, a MacArthur fellow, and, and this is someone who, who's intelligent and connected and knows what's happening. Mm-hmm. He's also got a book out there, Better, um, and, and it, you know, it's interesting because his, he's got the checklist manifesto, which everybody, I need to go read that book. Everybody said it's absolutely fantastic. But basically what he was saying yesterday is, you know, and this is where we need to do, we need to depoliticize this issue. Healthcare is not a political issue. It is a societal issue. And we need to take the politics out of it because he says, you know, the healthcare reform that's passed, it's not perfect, it doesn't solve all of the problems, but it gets us on the right track to solve the problems. And the, and this is why I'm, I'm, I'm going to, since we can't rationalize or logic 
you know, and this goes back to that misperception study I was talking about uh, an eon ago when I was last on the show, but we can't logic with people, okay? They're emotionally reacting to emotionally charged stories they're being told. It's not information. It's not reporting. It's stories they're being told that elicit an emotional response. So there's no point in trying with the logic and the rational. It's not going to work. I'm going to come up with this new thing. I'm calling it pass the buck. And it's because when the GOP and conservatives and Tea Party and everybody stands up there and says, we're going to repeal health care reform, we're going to leave the taxes as they are, they're passing the buck. Oh, it doesn't solve that. the problem. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't you know solve the problem. It's still right there. People still need health care. The reason our health care system is broken is because it rewards quantity, not quality. And I'm quoting Dr. Gwande on that one. I think it's brilliant. Our healthcare system, it, it, it does. It rewards quantity, not quality. So the problem is the reason why the system is so burdened and expensive is because people do not get healthcare in a preventive beginning place. They get it in an emergency place. Right. And that, that that's passed along. So this is a pass-the-buck problem. Look, roll back the federal health care reform. What's going to happen? That's passing the buck to the states. Now states are going to be burdened with the cost of the health care system. If the state wants to pass that buck, guess who's burdened? The cities. Right. In the end, you're paying for it. In the end, you pay for it. It doesn't solve the problem. The problem must be solved. So pass you know, the buck. Go ahead. Jules, I think that's brilliant, and if any DNC people happen to be listening, you should really take note, because I think, and I think this really ties in beautifully with now the fact that the GOP or the Republican Party, whatever they are there, <laughs> has the House majority, and, uh, you know, so now, theoretically, they're partly responsible for legislation, you know, and, um, I, you know, to tie in your past the buck, I mean, all... For the past two years, we've seen nothing but obstruction and um, naysaying from the Republicans. And and now they are theoretically in a position where they can make laws. And so I would say that, you know, in, you know if instead of passing laws, they're passing the buck, right? I mean, yep, in trying to right. undo they're everything. They're passing the buck. Yeah. So, because, mm-hmm. you know what, it's going to end up costing you. Why not come up with an efficient, transparent, you know, system where you know where it's going to cost right you know planet money just put out the podcast where they went around and interviewed people in denmark they have one of the highest tax rates in denmark i mean mm-hmm. you buy a car and literally you pay 205 percent tax on wow that's sale price. oh my god <laughs> is that amazing and they pay 50 percent of their income into the system and they walked around and they interviewed people and they talked to people and they said you know no I think it's fine. I think it's fine. There's always the political talk of we need to roll back taxes and tax us less. And they said, but why do we want to do that? It's fine. We're fine. You know, we get provided a a wonderful education and we get great health care. You know, she said they they, they went around and they interviewed people of different generations and the people are all like, no, I'm okay. That's all right. I'm okay paying into into the government because they provide me all the services I need. Yeah, and I think that's because people see, they see the tangible,
tangible programs. They participate in them daily, yeah. and they're not like alienated mm-hmm. from their own experience in the way that we are here in America. I mean, it just shocks me. Like, if you speak to anybody, you set aside their political party affiliation or whatever, you speak to anyone and just sort of throw the door open and say, so, you know, the last time you dealt with your health insurance company, how did it go? I mean, I will bet you nine times out of ten – Someone has a horror story about how mm-hmm. you know there was something wrong in the billing. Um, they refused on this. Um, it was just a huge rigmarole and runaround to get that done, you know. And so uh, people have these horror stories. But what I thought was so shocking is that somehow, <laughs> you know, people will believe what they see on TV, what some talking head says, or you know, something. It's like we've lost our minds. That we've become alienated from our own experiences. Of like, wait a minute. This really needs to be fixed because my personal experience with it is that it's broken and it needs, you know, retooling. And um and I have to I kind of have to go back to the idea that part of what has made people lose their minds is that we have an African American president. I mean, you know, it's some only so much of it is rational disagreement and I think that when you have people kind of going off the rails um, to the degree that we have, I think you know racism is something. Unfortunately, we we is a legacy of our country, and and I think mm-hmm. if anything, that really kind of you know has always been used to divide, you know, to say oh well those those people are not deserving, so that's why we can't have nice things. We can't have nice mm-hmm. things in America because those people will break it, those people will abuse it, those people will try to get one over, and you know, and and well, we all kind of know what those people means. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, we have our cultural moray in this country. We'll never be able to set up a system the way Denmark does. And I'm mm-hmm. not saying that as a good or bad thing. I'm saying it simply as a state of fact. There's no way yeah. we're going to be able to set up a system. First off, we're so much bigger than Denmark, and yeah. our population is so much more massive. It's a scale it's just issue. Not, it's a scaling issue. Mm-hmm. It, that yeah. is a boutique country that you know. Right. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quoting Planet Money on this, but it's a boutique country there. Right. So I'm not I'm not advocating that we should have a system the way Denmark does, but what I am trying to advocate is like the way you put it, Sin, when you said, you know, you see the tangible results of the money that you pay in for mm-hmm. something, and when right. you throw it into a big huge bucket, it's really scary. Where does it go, and what has it done? And when people really want to emotionally charge you, they can play on your biggest fear factors, and I right. think you're dead spot on, Sin, with the fear factor thing of those people are taking your money and using it for themselves and it's not in a good way that benefits anybody mm-hmm. it's just stuck you know it's just you know it's it's sucking the tea to the welfare state is the way it's put out there you know without a mm-hmm. complete understanding of of where the money is actually going and what it's actually doing and and of course the spotlight so, never goes on the exact people who suck the teeth, as I think Senator Grassley of Iowa put it, the three hundred million whatever teats of, of the whatever mm-hmm. you know of the government. It's like, well, Mr. Grassley, I believe you enjoy tremendous farm subsidies and so on and so forth. I mean, I think some of the you know the most um, appalling hypocrisy comes from you know the cattle ranchers and so on and so forth in the. In the you know in the West uh, where the Rocky Mountain West where you know they really get enjoy a lot of subsidies there too in terms of ranching and, let's, and so forth you know and let's be honest about the slippery slope concerns because as soon as you start seeing government 
running and government mandating and government lawmaking and things like that, people start wondering where does it end and how will it affect me. Look at right now the labor, Department of Labor is working to shut down a mine that has so many safety violations, it absolutely should not be in operation. <laughs> they have, and, and these safety violations, according to the news story, uh, this is the Massey Mine Company. It's the same company that had the 29 miners lost recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> this this mine that they want to shut down is a different one, but it's a mine that has uh, gross violations. It's things like these are safety violations that are obvious. You should be able to visibly see them and improve them, and you haven't done. These are citations we've given you for safety violations previously, and you still haven't repaired them. Mm-hmm. So now what we've got, you know, is is the government saying, cracking down, we're going to actually put some teeth in our regulations, and we're going to start forcing companies to comply with safety. And it amazes me that there could be pushback on that. But people don't want that choice being made. The problem is, I think, you know what, I think there should be a three-strike system. If we have a three-strike system for criminals, you know, people who rob, um, you know, for example, three strikes and you're a lifer, why don't we have a three-strike system for companies that continually violate environmental and safety regulations? I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And I would actually advocate the, you know, the – analog of the death penalty (laughs) that we have for human beings, but I would actually advocate that for corporate personhood. That is, if you have egregious, you know, violations three, you know, three times in a row, you, your corporation needs to be dissolved. That's it. You're done. You've shown that you can't run the company responsibly, you know, or legally. In most cases, they're flat breaking the law. Right, What's and the you know they are breaking the law, and they're creating a situation that I understand. We've got to talk about jobs, and we've got to think about jobs. And right now, especially in this economy and national debt, which I do want to get over to national debt. Mm-hmm. In this economy, those are serious fears; they're valid fears. But at the same time, with this massy mining company, what we're talking about are not jobs; we're talking about human lives. And right. why do we have to have? 29 people dead most recently. That's not even total deaths in mining accidents. But why do we have to have that many people dead before we take it seriously? You know, I'm interested to see what the Department of Labor is able to do here because, by gum, I am 100% behind putting some teeth into, mm-hmm. you know, making sure those regulations are complied with and that when you're cited for regulation violations that you understand this is serious. I've got to get this taken care of because when we talk about the lives of our workers, I'm sorry, that's just that's that's key. That's bottom line right there. Right. I agree. And somehow What's human the point life of protecting becomes, jobs if people are dead. <laughs> exactly. Right. Human life has become really devalued. I mean, it really has become, mm-hmm. you know, the bottom line above all, and there's something really appalling about that. I mean, yeah, isn't this what we? Is it this violent what we, fatigue? Well, and isn't this what we point at other nations like China and you know Somalia and all those other places where it's like, oh well, you know, human life has no value. Look at the corruption. Look at, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And it's like, well, we have plenty of our own going on right here at home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, Jules, talk a bit more about um, this opportunity that you have to go right to the White House and speak directly to people who are of consequence and are of, of position to do something about the, 
the debt, you know, the national debt, the deficit, and so on and so forth. Tell us more about that. Well, it's really it's an interesting thing because it's it's the opportunity to go to Washington D.C. and sit with a group of people um, and talk a little bit about the national debt. Um, we don't have a specific agenda or a specific uh, thing that we're going to produce from this. It's more an opportunity to take words, and I've opened up the opportunity on several spots. Um, I would love to hear from people, you know, what their thoughts and feelings and emotions are about the national debt and, you know, solutions and things like that. I've heard from some folks, and it's really interesting. There's, um, you know, balance the budget calculators, I think, at the New York Times. The the issue I have is that when you start looking at these things, and these are the things I'm going to take next week to the discussions, um, there's 10 of us, and uh, we run the gamut of perspectives, as far as I understand. Uh, you know, And so we're going to be able to meet with some lawmakers and some different groups and just kind of you know, hear what they think, tell them what we think, give a little feedback, have a little dialogue and constructive conversation. Um, that's my optimistic goal. Um, and then I'd like to come home and just have a better sense of why people believe the way they do believe. Um, because when we talk about the national debt, it's a serious problem. We know it's a serious problem. We've had our nation in debt before. We got it out. We got it back in. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a gambling addiction problem, it seems. But I think part of it is not really understanding enough about how we ended up in this debt and what the real solution is going to be. Because I'm going to go back to the pass-the-buck thing here. You know what? Repealing the health reform it's just going to add to the deficit. It really is. It's it's not people think of that as an expenditure. But you know what? It's an expenditure either way. This is trying to control the expenditure. Um I don't I don't think that the healthcare reform law is by any means exactly what my optimistic, you know, idealistic perfect bill would have been, but at least it does get us on that right track and it controls that cost a little bit. And that's that's a big thing. But I think another another thing, and this is an interesting point that Melissa Schober brought up today, um, that there are some GOP rules she you know wanted to kind of visit, and they're going to be on Momocrat. She's writing a post, so uh, you know make sure to drop by the site and check that out. It's going to be up soon. She's talking about how we're funding the war, and I want to say that across the board, every single time I said to people. What do you want to say to Congress about the national debt issue? People said, war, stop the war, stop spending so much on war, quit funding the war. You know, and, um, and then I had uh, an interesting comment from somebody I know from the military community who said, and actually fulfill your promises to the veterans, especially the ones, uh, you know, who are dealing with health issues right now. So I think it's interesting that at the bottom line here, you know, Melissa Schober's point, which I think is perfect, is that you have to fund the war under regular appropriations, not emergency appropriations. But again, does the average American know how we're funding the war? And do they, you know, at one point we used to, and I think it stopped in the last few years, we used to have a calculator of how much the war was costing. Do you remember that, guys? Oh, there is a war, mm-hmm. there is a calculator um, online. Um, we can put it up on the Facebook page later, and I know I've cited it before in posts. But it, it also gives you the breakdown on, in your state, 
how much, you know, in your congressional district, how much taxpayer money goes to various war efforts. And it also tells you, for the price of a B-1 bomber, you could have hired, you know, 40,000 teachers or whatever it is. Whatever it is that you could have gotten in a, in a civilian economy has instead gone to the military. I think that's fantastic. I think, you know what, this is what I think we need to do. I don't think we can, you know, say to people what they should think or what they should believe. I, I've given up on trying to logic with people. I think the important thing is to let people know, here's tools. Here's where you can go to get information. Here's to understand what the cost is really. And it's hard to wrap your mind around trillions of dollars. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around billions. But um, basically, I think we need to come up with these tools. I'd love to put that tool up on the Facebook page, and I'd love for us to kind of collectively try to come up with other pieces of information and solid tools. Enough with this emotionally charged, you know, get you feeling, stop you thinking, uh, you know, appeals through stories, whether they're videos or blog posts or things like that. And enough with the emotion. I want to give people things that their brains can use to think. You know, the cost of the war calculator, bottom yeah. line, health care reform, you know, cost breakdown. Because, I, again, I don't think a lot of people understand this. You know, I loved this on Tom Ashbrook's On Point, and I, I should put this, I'll put the link up on the Facebook page from this, uh, the story of Dr. Gawande, but he was talking about how he went to a school board meeting, and in talking with one of the uh, board members, he understood how the current healthcare system affects education. So I think we need to have kind of like a, not necessarily like a chart or graph, but maybe a little bit more like a, a cloud diagram that explains to people how these things are all interconnected and how they all come together. I realize I'm getting a little touchy-feely with that, but I think that that would actually make it so people could conceptualize. Here is the national okay. debt. Okay, so yeah. the, the um, cost of war calculator can be found. It's a um, project of the National Priorities Project, and um, the cost of war calculator can be found at costofwar.com. Um, it comes in different languages, so, you know, you can choose English, obviously. Um, and you can, as I mentioned, you can drill down and see what the cost of the war in Iraq came to, what the cost of the war in Afghanistan is. You can embed it on your website. Um, you can drill down and see, you know, by state, by county, by congressional district, um, all those kinds of things, and see, you know, what people in your neighborhood are paying, basically, to continue um, these wars. And and I guess in terms of healthcare, I mean, I really love what you had to say about, you know, just kind of getting away from sort of those emotional trigger points for people and, and getting them to think in a much more practical way. Because I, I thought one of the most brilliant things that sort of was just an aside during the healthcare reform debate, uh, I believe it was... Um, I think it was Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who just sort of dropped it as an aside, but I really think it should have been made a much bigger thing, which is to say that what the law is trying to do is reform insurance in a way so that we can use, by pooling everyone together into sort of like a Costco or a Sam's Club buying pool, that we can use our numbers to get better deals on, mm -hmm. you know, what, 
you know, what it costs to give the health care to us, right? And and I think yeah. that that just got, like, blown off into, spiraled into socialism, and it's just like a total misunderstanding. Like, if you belong to Sam's Club, or if you, if you shop at Sam's Club, or if you're a Costco member, you're not a socialist. You're part <laughs> of a buying club. <laughs> That's right. right. And you also have the, the people... option of, you don't, Nobody's requiring you exactly. to have a Sam's Club membership. There's exactly. no requirement. It's not a mandatory Costco membership. It is a purely opt-in Costco membership, and that's what they're trying to do with the purchase of health insurance is make it Costco-like <laughs> by just using sort of the, you know, we talked just before we were talking about how the scale, the sheer size of America, so on and so forth, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to scale things up. Well, here's a way that we can use our numbers to help us get a better deal so that it's less expensive all around, you know, and, of course, in many other ways, too. But, I mean, to sort of use our scale and our size in our favor, right? And that's where it's like in opting in, you participate and you enjoy the benefits and, you know, and the government can, you know, broker these things much more easily with corporations than individual people can, which is why when you're sitting there frustrated on the phone after being on hold for 45 minutes and then speaking to a completely unresponsive customer service representative at your insurance company, that's why it's so frustrating, (laughs) right? You against this massive, gigantic corporation, which is multinational, I'm sure. So, you know, I I really feel like that point got sort of lost, and that was really too bad because that's really just a way to kind of understand the public option, these insurance exchanges. California passed a law recently where we're setting up our exchange, you know, so we're really really ready to go and put it in practice and get it going and, you know, make it make it real, make it happen. And and I cannot believe, here we are, back to this, that, you know, we're going to relitigate the whole thing and repeal it. Or, you know, it's, the GOP is going to try to at least, you know. So I, I really so agree with you. It's logical. That, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's that so we logical. Need to kind of, People don't get it. Yeah, we need to bring the conversation back down to a, um, an analogy or a metaphor that people can wrap their heads around. And the whole Costco thing, like, that has nothing to do if you're a Republican or you think that socialism is a giant threat or whatever, right? I mean, it, it just brings it back down to a scale where people can wrap their heads around it. So I don't think that's the only metaphor, but, you know, that definitely is one. And and. I think it's also a little frustrating that, you know, we keep saying the emergency room is not a backup plan. That is like, that is paying retail. <laughs> that is paying, like, yeah. that's that's like instead of going. That's not paying retail. That's, that's shopping paying, at Nordstrom's instead of Target. <laughs> yeah. That's like adding a premium, right? Because when you, when you go to the emergency room, then it's like you're in a crisis situation. And so that's mm-hmm. where you're paying the premium for, you know, the the, per, the diabetic person who suddenly his infection has gotten so bad the leg needs to be amputated. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the degree to which you've let things go, right? And, and it, well, how and expensive it, is that versus, okay, make sure that, you know, you have proper circulation in that leg and, you know, this, that, and the other thing, don't get an infection and, you know, take care of it when it's still small. Yeah, right. And the other thing, too, is, and I think this is interesting, and it, it talks about the interconnectivity, and I realize it asks people to take a lot of concepts in at once, but here's here's another interesting thing. One of the, uh, I'm not going to name names, but a hospital in Boston that's very large and prominent, and everybody would know the name, their largest admission is asthma. 
Now, asthma has been on the rise. A lot of people and a lot of studies out there link the rise of asthma to the rise of air pollution. It's more prominent in areas with worse air problems. Um, it's very prominent here in my city. So if you want to prevent asthma problems, you have to work on multiple fronts, but let's just talk about the healthcare front for a minute. Right now, the problem is those hospitals are profiting from those sick kids being admitted with asthma and breathing problems. Oh, boy, that's all turned around, isn't it? Right. So what we need to do is we need to take it and turn it on its head. Yes. And the other problem I have with the concept of leave you with your money and let you choose what good you want to do with your money is that, honestly, that doesn't really solve the problem. We're not talking about deciding whether to hand the homeless guy on the corner a dollar or not. We're talking about a much larger issue, and, and and it frustrates me that we try to oversimplify, you know, let you choose what good you do. I think it's important that individuals do good. I think it's important that faith-based organizations choose to do good. I think it's good that nonprofits choose to do good. I think we need to have all that working with it. But the other thing, too, is I don't think our culture is as service-oriented as it once was. Mm-hmm. And without recognizing where we are now as a culture and where our priority systems are right now as a culture, without looking at that honestly, we can't keep trying to say, let's do what we did 50 years ago. That worked back then. That's what we need to do now. It's a completely different society now. And I, I, I just I think it's naive, and I think at best it's naive, and at worst it's destructive to ignore where we're at now and what solutions we need to have happening now. We can't sit here and say we're going to solve the debt crisis but not alter our tax structure at all. It's, you know, it's not a popular thing to say. It's not something people enjoy hearing. But the bottom line with any resolution to debt is you have to increase your income and decrease your expenses, and you need mm-hmm. to operate more efficiently. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and and it needs to quit being a political issue. It needs right. to absolutely stop stop dividing us down political lines. It is a cultural issue. It is a citizen issue. It's a societal issue, whether we're I talking agree. about and debt I, or health care. And I think that people need a much better sense of exactly how much you get for your dollar. You know, I mean, we we sort of had this meme floating around a while back. We did a blog post on it, I recall, about, you know, how I'm glad to pay taxes because I get a lot in return. My kid goes to school for free. I drive on roads that were recently repaired. Sure, there are still potholes, but, you know, hey, I get to enjoy the California freeway system. There's no tolls on that freeway. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> my tax dollar gets me a lot. I can send a letter, you know. I mean, all these kinds of things, right? I enjoy the parks, et cetera. I mean, it just goes on and on. And um, I think we need to do a better job of punching through sort of the media narrative of crisis, mm-hmm. you know, drama, the drama that comes from crisis and negative things that happen, which are of course always attention-getting. Right, but then we also need to do a better job of saying, you know, on a day-to-day basis, these things—the fact that I can, you know, my utilities work, (laughs) you know, that that there is a a city, you know, sewage system, et cetera, like all these things—that you know, that didn't just—it didn't just 
appear. It didn't just like magic its way into existence. It came about because it was a public works program that someone decided was a priority, right? And they and they went ahead and did it and built it. So absolutely I think that, you know, we really kind of need to refocus people's attention on um well, what, many things they do get from paying their taxes. It's it's almost like we need a door to door movement. I remember when Prop 8 was going on the ballot, uh, Kathy Griffith on her show, she had a group, and she was going door-to-door to to people's houses to discuss gay marriage, one-on-one, face-to-face. How is gay marriage really affecting you? You know, just house-to-house, to to talk to people, to really on a one-on-one basis, and it seems like that that would be the only thing that would make sense now with health care, is to really face-to-face explain to people it makes so much sense. Yeah, it just but makes so much sense. <laughs> we, we get it, uh, caught in a little bit of a loop, though, because as with what Julie was mentioning before about a study that was done, how people's, um, you know, they they harden into certain attitudes and beliefs, and it yes. doesn't matter what evidence you present. I mean, I think that's, you know, we're sort of looking at faith-based, <laughs> you know, a faith-based mm-hmm. worldview, and it doesn't matter if you're secular or not, but, you know, very often it does tend to concentrate in sort of religious fundamentalist communities where it's just like, mm-hmm. this is how the world is, and I just know it. And anything, you might talk until you're blue in the face, but, you know, evidence, schmevidence, you know, I'm just going to believe mm-hmm. what I want to believe. So, um, you know, that I think that is kind of one of the things that we struggle with when we do do that door-to-door or person-to-person kind of contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think I keep going back to that study because I think it's so important to understand how dogmatically driven people form a framework for the world they live in, and you know, and I, I don't mean to disassociate myself from that at all. Um, I'm I'm as human as the next person but i think it's really important to understand not just what we believe but how and why we believe what we believe and that study that mm-hmm. really talks about that and at the end of the day it's not going to do anybody any good to say you just don't understand or you just don't know enough or you're just wrong here's the facts you know you're you're doing something bad that immediately that's a conversation shut down i think what we need yeah. to do is we open it up and we need to say, hey, look, we're all trying to find our footing here. This is a new deal. It's a new century. It's a new deal. we got to figure out a new way here, and, and this is what we're endeavoring to do is find a new way. Safe face. Nobody's wrong. Nobody's bad. Nobody's trying to do anything wrong. Let's just all admit we're trying to figure out our footing and get something put together because this past the buck thing and I, I really, I'm going to hammer that one <laughs> you know, until there's there's no carpet fiber left to beat. It, this pass the buck thing is just not going to work. We yeah. cannot sit here and continue to take every little thing and make it a political issue, divide us along lines. You know, it, I was driving down the street this morning, and, you know, I, I live in red, red country. Um, in fact, it's so red it's almost, you know, burgundy and (laughs) there was a big huge ford expedition um on the road in front of me and it had a large red sign on it that said the constitution frustrating liberals since 1789 and i thought no 
Did that just amuse you? Did it just make you chuckle because liberals are the enemy and, and we're on a team and, and my team is the conservatives and, and I just, I talk, I trash talk the other team. You know, th- I think there's a team spirit camaraderie thing going on here. And they saw something that trash talked the other team and they were like, woohoo, haha, that's so funny. And I thought, seriously, what do you expect to accomplish with that bumper sticker? And do you even know who the framers of the Constitution were and what they, they were the Some of them were the long-haired radicals of their day. <laughs> I think that gets missed. Do you know how radical the U.S. Constitution was? Do you know how radically liberal the U.S. Constitution was? Liberals are not frustrated by the Constitution because the Constitution grants rights. Liberals are mm-hmm. frustrated by attempts to use the Constitution to remove rights. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I just thought, you know, honestly, that right there reminds me on a daily basis why it's not going to work to try to tell someone they're wrong and they've got it all backwards and they don't know enough and we're on different teams. It's not you know, going to work. We have to consolidate the teams. We have to re patriotize people we need to get them thinking of themselves as americans you know what i'm saying we need to all be on one team we're go raw raw we're americans and what we've got before us is not a political problem what we've got before us is a societal issue and it's not time to pass the buck you know last night um there was a little a meme game going around on twitter and um or, or uh, let me back up. I was on Twitter uh, playing a little meme game, and then um, I happened to mention that I spent some holiday time with a, a favorite cousin of mine who lives in Singapore, and she came over here and you know went to college. So she's kind of like bicultural in that respect, and I think she might even have dual citizenship. But at any rate, um, but she currently lives in Singapore, and so I was talking with her about how the latest um, PISA scores came out. That is a sort of international uh, test of 15-year-olds, uh, test their reading um, science and math ability and so on and so forth. And you know the big news that came out uh, right in December was that um, Shanghai was sort of number one, and then if you look looked at sort of like the top, you know, five or ten nations after that in terms of the achievement scores. Um, many of them were East Asian nations like South Korea, Japan. Um, Hong Kong was also on the list. They tested, you know, certain cities in China, not the entirety of the country. Um, and Singapore. And, of course, you know, um, many of these countries are – you know, part of the sort of little dragons phenomenon, the sort of economic phenomenon of the 90s, um, where they really kind of went, they took a giant leap out of third world status and into really kind of, you know, pretty developed nation. (laughs) Um, So she and I were talking about these test scores and everything, and um, she said, well, yeah, you know, you're still on the English measurement system. So I would think that that probably holds you back in terms of, just, you know, maybe you might achieve better if you join the rest of the planet on the metric system. And, you know, I was kind of taken aback <laughs> by that because I thought, you know, that's just such a simple thing. And I and I sort of tossed it out there on Twitter and said, you know what, maybe we should ask Congress to pass a law because that's what it would take, an act of Congress, to put us all in the metric system, which we talked about back in the 70s and then just, you know, said, oh, dear, but, you know, we like our – 
bizarre, inexplicable English system better for some reason. But maybe we should, you know, maybe it's like a wacky idea, but I really just sort of feel like maybe we need to be more creative in confronting the GOP um, with these kinds of things. I mean, the metric system is not a partisan issue. It's an issue of do you want your children to be competitive on the global playing fields when it comes to math and science? You know, and I mean, we like, have a huge problem with the Mars lander because it was an international project, and uh, everybody else except the Americans were working on the metric system, and there was a conversion problem. Yes, it was like a blink <laughs> or something that was still on. I'm the sorry, the multi-million-dollar yeah. conversion problem. This is not just your kids don't know how to do their biology measurements. This is a hello. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so, you know, I'm sort of, I'm sort of. It, Maybe, you know, maybe there's only so much hay you can make of that one issue, but I think now, you know, with education reform and everything, just sort of everyone's in a tizzy over waiting for Superman and, oh, my God, charter schools are the answer, et cetera. You know, we're all sort of grasping at straws and thinking like, oh, my God, a Sputnik moment. You know, our kids are, (laughs) we spend so much money, yet we get mediocre results, et cetera. You know, we're all just in a tizzy over it. And so here, like here I thought maybe we need more things like, gee, maybe we should finally convert to the metric system to kind of bring us back down to to the ground, you know, to the earth, (laughs) put our feet, plant our feet firmly on the earth and say, what are those kinds of things that aren't, you know, really partisan, but nevertheless, if we changed that, would have a real practical effect and maybe also help, you know, our kids achieve better, right? I love that. You know? Practical, practical, basic, you know, Something simple, nonpartisan. But you have some more ideas, and I'm going to have to cut and run yeah. and let you guys talk about yeah. it. But I'm going to definitely come back because I know you're going to talk soon about your new project, and it's it's so phenomenal. So thanks for the chat about healthcare reform and everything so far, and I can't wait to hear more about your new project. Yeah, and good luck to you when you go visit the White House. We're counting on you to really, you know, shake them up over there. <laughs> I can't wait to hear about all the details, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, great. Bye, Jules. Thanks, Julie. <laughs> well, yes. So I've I finally decided to start something called the K twelve News Network. Um because I really feel for a number of different reasons. I feel like there um has been a persistent need um for someone many people Mm -hmm. to advocate on behalf of public education because we were talking before a little bit about how, you know, everyone just sort of takes for granted, oh, the roads, you know, Mm -hmm. um, parks, like, you know, you you pay your tax dollars and it's not really clear to you what you get in return. Or for many people, it's not really clear what you get in return. And I think that with schools, it's the same thing. If If you look at survey after survey, people who are asked, people with Children in public school are asked, you know, how do you feel about your local school? Are you satisfied, you know, in general with yeah. with the level of education your child is getting? And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I love my local school. They're great. You know, they're awesome. I love them. And then you ask them, well, what's the state of public education just in the country, like just generally? And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. my God, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's just awful. You know, we're in decline. We're a nation in decline. We're a nation in crisis, the rising tide of mediocrity, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. know, we heard that during the Reagan years. Now we're hearing it again in another way um, with a different kind of magic bullet. And I part mm-hmm. of it is that I feel, again, we don't get the sense of, like, exactly 
you know, what is working and what is not working on the yeah. really local level. So part of what the K-12 News Network is is aspiring to do, we just launched, like I just basically kind of got the website together uh, in the past month. <laughs> and yeah. what we would like to do ultimately is really kind of take hyper-local news about your local school and get social media savvy moms, especially, but also the parents, you know, to really mm-hmm. kind of blog, like just little updates every day, like what's happening. You know, I mean, it's a big issue for us here in California because we were informed by Jerry Brown that, you know, guess what? The state deficit is about $21 billion and there'll have to be $9 billion in cuts to education, you know, in the next year or two, right? And so we're kind of and even We don't have a lot to cut from. <laughs> We've cut to the bone. There was a yeah. there was an, uh, an education-only focused sort of summit on the budget that Jerry Brown had here in Los Angeles, and I happened to be watching some of that online. And, you know, you had administrators, you had teachers, you had members of school superintendents, you had, you know, board of education members, you had teachers' unions, you just had a huge cross-section, PTA you know, the PTA folks mm-hmm. were there, and everyone who basically has a stake in this, except for the kids themselves, you know, all the adults were there, and, and one person said, we have cut to the bone, there's no more to cut, anything else beyond this would be amputation. You know, mm-hmm. that's how dire it is. And so I think yeah. that for those of us who send our kids to public school, it's it's become this really pressing issue of, you know, there's only so much you can squeeze from the the parent fundraising stone. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, as a, you know, I, that's exactly where my school is. I mean, most of everything in my kids' school, every extracurricular activity, even the science and uh, PE teachers, everything is funded by PTA. So yeah. we're all waivers every year on how much money we can get parents to fork over or how much yeah. time we can get them to volunteer. Yes, and we're <laughs> not even counting the unpaid labor of, let's face it, it's mostly women, who mm-hmm. volunteer at the school who are basically keeping that library going because there may not yeah. even be a librarian, you know, yeah. who who may be the school nurse de facto because they can't afford a school nurse. You know, oh, I yeah. Mean, it's it's you know it's it's I don't want to mischaracterize that kind of service because it's done willingly and lovingly. But I think you know there was a recent New York Times article that talked about how a lot of women are just saying, you know what, I am tapped out. I am tapped out yeah. of like the five oh, definitely. committees. I'm tapped out. You know, I have a job on top of this. You know, and mm-hmm. we've we've taken all of the budget cut crisis and put it on the shoulders of the parents trying desperately exactly. to make up for it. And I, I live in a community where we are lucky enough that we passed a parcel tax. I mean, it's a fairly, you know, affluent or you know, upper middle class suburban mm-hmm. community. Um, and we could do that. We're tiny enough that we could do that and everyone could get agreement on that. But there are going to be school districts and there are going to be a lot of communities where they can't afford to do that. Yeah. You know? And uh, oh, so, totally. You know, we're just we're seeing, like, greater and greater inequality. And I think that, you know, now is a time to really get, to, to harness the power of social media <laughs> to connect people and to get, you know, parents, to get educators to get even some of these students, 
you know, some of the older mm-hmm. students maybe who would like to blog every now and then about oh, you know, their perspective as they as they you know leave high school and go on to college and the struggles there, right? So um, yeah. I really I really feel like there's a need for this, and I think also there's a lot of astroturfing that's going on. Um, there's something called the National School Choice Week, which I don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen ads on Facebook, but I did a post about yeah. this, and I'll put it up on our Facebook page also at Momocrats. But if you look at who's sponsoring National School Choice Week, it's the Cato Institute, it's the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, it's Betsy DeVos, who is has this group mm-hmm. called the American Federation of Children, and it's really a lot of very, very conservative people who found that the voucher thing didn't really get them any traction, but they're finding that the charter school thing, wow, they're getting a lot of traction uh-huh. on that. And, you yeah. know... I want to I want to have a caveat here because um, charter schools are public, you know. First of all, so yeah. they are yeah. public schools. But and I don't want to um, take away, you know, the uh, the many accomplishments that charter schools have been able to do. I think that in neighborhoods where there's just chronic dysfunction, whether it's the mm-hmm. administration, the teachers, the the fact that those poor, fo- you know, those beleaguered Teachers and administrators cannot overcome, you know, tremendous poverty and other kinds of, you know, social problems in those mm-hmm. communities. You know, I think the charter schools have been able to work miracles, but I think we also need to recognize, like Jeffrey Canada's, um, you know, Harlem Children's Zone, that they're paying like forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars per pupil to not just educate them, but to give them wraparound services that make up for you know, deprivation, poverty, et cetera, you know. Exactly. So let's, let's not kid ourselves that charter schools, it's the, that the, it's the charter school aspect. It's really the fact that the charter school is sort of the tip of the spear and the fact that you've got all this other wraparound services and funding that they're mm-hmm. able to bring to those kids, you know, and help them. And the, and many of them have done marvelously, which is fabulous, right? We, we need this. Yeah. This is about the American promise and the American dream. So, But the, I think the problem is that charter schools, they're not regulated. A suspiciously mm-hmm. high number of them are the pet projects of hedge fund managers who mm-hmm. very often are involved in companies that kind of subcontract out to provide services that these nonprofit charter com- you know charter schools um you know need right yeah. and and here's the thing like if you have a charter school it needs space it needs you know lunches school lunches it needs yeah. all kinds of things right obviously it needs teachers it needs supplies it needs an administrative staff but the thing is mm-hmm. when you subcontract out all those things to private you know like again the subcontractors yeah you're not necessarily getting the best deal for your dollar, right? Because again, it's yeah. like it's like our health insurance problem. We're all sort of atomized and disaggregated and we're all just sort of fighting on our own. Well, each little charter school is sort of fighting on its own. And the thing is, we have an infrastructure. We have already in the public school system administrative staff. We have, you know, capabilities to provide school lunches on a big scale. You know, we have janitorial staff, we have buildings, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think the tricky thing about charter schools is that they can end up competing for space with existing public schools, and so that's an issue. <laughs> and I oh, think that yeah. 
realistically speaking, we've got the same pie, dwindling pie of funding for public schools, but then you've added however many more charter schools to the mix, and now they're competing with existing schools for that dwindling pie of funding. It, so Exactly. You know, I'm seeing it where I live. <laughs> yeah, and I think that, you know, charter schools, again, parents need choices, and I think that's why National School Choice Week is so enticing, because it uses this mm-hmm. language of choice to draw in parents, parents who are like, well, maybe I don't like my local school so much, and, you know, maybe I want to send my child somewhere else. Where might that be, right? And, and so it sounds good yeah. to have lots of choices. But the problem is that, you know, the charter school may not be the may not be the best choice. A lot of charter schools have equally mediocre kinds of results in terms of the student, mm-hmm. you know, whether you measure by test scores or what have you. So um just, you know, it, there's a lot of caveat emptor, right? There's a lot of buyer beware. And I think the answer yeah. is not to cut down the number of charter schools necessarily, but it, the answer is really to make sure that we are adequately funding all of our public school options, whether it's a magnet exactly. school, a charter school, or, you know, an existing public school. Adequately fund that, you know, and by that I mean look at also the administrative fat. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we heard a lot about how teachers unions, oh, they just, you know, horror stories about how highly paid teachers sit in rubber rooms and things like that. Yeah, sure, that happens. But, you know, there's a lot of day-to-day fat in the administrative rank mm-hmm. also, you know, that we, that we never look at. And so I, I would say, you know, some people say, well, public schools, they're, you know, there's a tendency toward corruption. Uh, I think I just read just recently that in Chicago, in the Chicago public schools, there's this big scandal now about how $800,000 were unaccounted for. And, yeah. you know, <laughs> who knows where it went. It seemed to vanish into someone's pocket. And mm-hmm. by the same token, though, there's a there's no regulation in charter schools. I mean, it's basically a self-regulating industry. So we're starting to see a lot of stories about how in Ohio, John Boehner's state, how mm-hmm. Ohio is a very choice-friendly public school state. There are more charters there, you know, I think um, percentage-wise than in any other state, which is surprising. I would have thought wow. California. Yeah, yeah me and, too. Yeah, and I'm writing a post on this, which should be up in the next 24 hours or so. But um, in Ohio, there's just been a kind of chronic trend of charter school corruption scandals that keep erupting because there's no regulation. There's no regulation. So it's partly the Ohio Department of Education which needs to step up and do a better job, but it's also charter schools are not really good at regulating themselves. Why do we have people who are not educators but they're more entrepreneurs running charter schools. Like I think parents also in thinking about choice need to think about that too. Is it yeah. really a good thing if the person running the school was once a lawyer or is really like, yeah. you know, <laughs> a business person? <laughs> you know, is that really like wouldn't it be better to have like an educator, you know, exactly. running the school? Who's so, trained in running a school. Our, the thing I see here in my community where we yeah. live is our charter school is expanding. One of our public, actually two of our public schools were closed down last year, mm-hmm. and the charter school swooped in over the summer and made a second site, uh-huh. expanding the charter school we already had. And yeah. the thing is, is good or bad, and everyone I know who goes to our local charter school loves it dearly. Uh-huh. Not a bad thing to say about it. But the thing yeah. is, I also know people who've been on that waiting list for four years. 
fighters, people who don't, you know. So the thing is, is good or bad for, in my community anyway, for most of us, the charter school, it's not a choice. Right. It's not an option. So we have to put for, you know, in our community, we're trying to get more focus put on the public school because, and this is, I think, the same for a lot of communities, the charter school isn't an option because it is limited. Yes. Not everybody's just going to be able to walk in and go. Right. And we have now in California the trigger law. I know we have just one minute left, but I'll say very quickly, we have the trigger law, which allows parents to get a petition going. At least 51% of the parents have to agree that they want their low-performing schools, specifically low-performing, to um, have like one of four options. So one of them is Mm -hmm. a takeover by a charter. And, you know, that is one of the many, quote-unquote, choices we have out there. And, And it's great that parents have that, but let's have, you know, also some transparency and sort of, uh, you know, exactly. a clean, clean sort of gathering of signatures and not sort of misleading people and, and not, you know, not sure what they're going to expect. So I think exactly. you know, we're schools, we've got about 10 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Charter schools, I mean, I think they're they're seen as the silver bullet because they're very immediate, they're very quick, but at the same time, as you mm-hmm. say, there's waiting lists and then that's not an option for you. So how is the fast urgency of it, you know, how is that helping you? So everybody, yeah. please go to k12newsnetwork.com um, and submit a story. Um, you know, let's let's start a conversation. Oh, we're we are off. Okay, I think it's still recording, but we are off. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for letting me rattle on. <laughs> oh, no problem. You know what? This is a huge topic for me because it really is a big deal out here. The charter school is it's. The push and pull between our charter school and the public schools out here is becoming a really big issue. So yes. it's something we we follow, you know, and it's it's hard. They have so many more resources than we do. Yeah. And well, it, make, it makes it hard. We have a bingo ranch here in town, uh-huh. and every night of the week a different charity organization or school works the bingo night to earn money for their organization. Mm-hmm. Our, our public school has a Monday night, and it's a struggle every week for them to get volunteers to come work it. Mm-hmm. But the charter mm-hmm. school, the parents have to commit to working it. So right. they make thousands of dollars on top of the funding they already get right. with that bingo night because their parents are obligated. Yeah. You know, and it, it's a little thing, but it's a little thing on top of a lot of others, you know. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think... You know, I'm all I'm trying to do is get people blogging about what's going on at their schools, and then we've got lots and lots of little tiny data points of hyper-local news, what's mm-hmm. going on in your local school, and then we can start putting it all together and saying, you know, what's the bigger picture, and how can we help each other? You know, what's going to be best Have you for the seen kids? Race to Nowhere yet? I have not. I really want to go. I, okay. It's coming to Los you Angeles. You have to, because... The, my son's teacher was the one who told me I had to go see it, and she was uh-huh. in tears when she told me about it. And she uh-huh. said exactly what I said about the charter schools. She says the charter schools are a, are a good thing for the people who can get there, but they're not the answer for the public. They're not the answer for most of us. And uh-huh. Race to Nowhere says, okay, forget about the charter schools. We need to focus on what we can do for the general public in you know in the public schools. Yes. And it's it's a much more wider view of things. I've changed the way I do things at home, 
and the, uh, we're actually planning a screening for parents here in this community. And the school district wants to make changes based on seeing the movie. They want to wow. open up a dialogue and see wow. what we can change to make things better. So it's a great, it's a great movie. You oh, have cool. to go see it. Yeah, I yeah. really want to catch it when it comes here to Los Angeles. Also, would you blog about that? Would you blog about that yeah. and put it on K12 News Network? Because that's oh, exactly yeah, the kind of thing you know that we're looking for. Um, just like little. I reports. actually reviewed. I reviewed the movie, and I can I can post repost the review, and then when we when we do it again as a viewing for the school district, I can write about that as well. That would be awesome. Yeah. 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 Totally. Because totally. It, it's really news to me that the school district is really open to making changes that See, you yeah, know come out of watching our, the film. That's very our powerful. Sister, our sister town, Pleasanton, which is about ten minutes away, which is where I saw it. Um, they not only did they the school district put on the screening for free, but they had um, they had a couple principals, people from the school district there, people from the movie, because it's local for us. The director, everybody who, it's local here in the Bay Area, yeah. so they're yeah. at a lot of the screenings. Right. And um, they, so not only did they have that discussion after the movie, but they, for the next six months, they have forums, homework forums, how 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 to help parents deal with dealing with teachers, how to help parents deal with homework for, you know, all these forums. So they've got six months' worth of ongoing dialogue and meetings with the school board to change the homework requirements, the things, you know, just all sorts of stuff that they're working on. It's like making a difference. Oh, my God, that's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, and all yeah. of this stuff is really kind of like about a change in attitude as opposed to like giant, you know, changes that require it, lots of money and, you know, expenditures it, that well, need signing off. Exactly. It's it yeah, it's a huge it is about change of attitude. They talked about a school in the movie they talk about a school somewhere in the Midwest where the principal decided no more homework. Uh-huh. That it was too stressful, and the focus on scores and and making the kids perform to these ridiculous levels, he nixed it. No more homework. Wow! That year, the school had the highest scores it had ever had. Oh my God! Of course, yeah. And that's one that's of the things awesome. they talk about is this stress level needs to be needs to be brought down, and this whole no child left behind in schools. Schools and teachers are so concerned about. Doing, teaching you know, the doing the paperwork. Yeah. Huh? Mm-hmm. Teaching to yeah. the test. Yeah. Ex- exactly. That the kids aren't learning anything. You yeah. know, kids get, they were saying that so such a huge percentage of college freshmen end up having to retake basic classes because they, man, it, they managed to get through high school with straight A's because they remembered facts. But when they got to college and actually had to learn and discuss the things, those mm-hmm. facts, they couldn't. Because mm-hmm. it was just all facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you'll, that is you'll, be, awesome. you'll be affected by it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's partly, you know, what I'm talking about, and also in talking about the media, you know, being driven by narratives of crisis, and you know, it's dramatic. They go to the dramatic thing. I mean, it's dramatic to talk about these inner city schools that are, you know, they're failing, mm-hmm. they're failing their kids. You know, everyone feels like a failure. They're just like tainted by, you know not being able to to function etc and it's like well i agree that is an emergency situation we need to help those yeah. people immediately but 99% of the whole rest of the public school system throughout the united states is not in a state of emergency so let's start having news about what's going on there 
Yeah. And I think yeah. hyperlocal news is a perfect way to do it because it's just like these ste- it's like a steady drip of like what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. And then if there's a big issue that arises, you know, maybe then we won't get these crisis situations of children, you know, committing suicide because they're bullied. Because if we hear about it on a local yeah. level, people can get involved and people can say, hey, this is really going to go to a very unhappy conclusion. Place. We don't do something. <laughs> yes. So let's nip it in the bud now, right? It, oh, exactly. Not to mention there is such, there's just such a disconnect in the school system nationwide. Yes. And if there was a place where people could talk about the things that are going right, like I mentioned that high that school in the Midwest, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. that was that was a big risk that that principal took or that yeah. that school board took, and a big, but it worked. And yeah. that's the kind of thing, which is why movies like Race to Nowhere and even Waiting for Superman, why those movies are so good because they bring those stories so p- other people can see them and go, wow. Mm-hmm. If it worked at that school, maybe that would work at our school. Right. You know, exchanging right. those ideas that can help everybody. Exactly, yeah. So it's not just about negativity and failure. It's about, oh. wow, what works, and let's repeat that over here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Their school yep. is just like ours. I bet that would be a solution for our issue, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Or we could borrow that idea and maybe change it a little bit and, you know, let's see if it works. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it's awesome. <laughs> oh, I will well, definitely thank you. Yeah. get some so stuff together for you for blast. sure. Oh, I'm sorry, what? I said no, I'll, I'll definitely get some posts for you for that. Oh, good. I, I can hardly wait. It's going to be great because so far it's just been me, and I'm like, wow, I'm really, you know, my own voice is really boring me. <laughs> but I need to put some content on there so, you know, quick something yeah. up. But, yeah, I think once we get people actually submitting, and I have um, a feature that, Theoretically, I need people to test it with me, but theoretically, it would allow you know various people to submit stories, um, and we can schedule them and all this other stuff. Then, you know, I think it's going to really take off and be very exciting. Yeah. Oh yeah, so. definitely. Especially if you you know spread you know once the word is spread and other teachers and you know because I'm thinking of my son's teacher because this mm-hmm. is you know this is the kind of thing that would be right up her alley because she's really all about changing people's attitudes, yes. you know, to make, parents especially, because when we went to back to school night at the beginning of the year, she, you know, she just had a big long speech about not stressing our kids out and how to help them with their homework and how to, you know, just all these really encouraging, loving things about how to help your child get the most out of the learning experience versus forcing them to just fulfill these duties, you know right. what I'm saying? Right, Yep. Yep, absolutely. And and I my own perspective on that is an is a child of <laughs> Chinese immigrants and that <laughs> element of Asian American culture that's like sometimes literally about physical like corporal punishment if you don't perform. I mean, I didn't Exactly. That, I know there are parents who are that harsh and authoritarian and it's like if you don't perform, then your life is very miserable. You know? Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's not that's not good. I've seen a lot of people break from that, like literally have breakdowns, you know. Oh, yeah, totally. It's, and that, yeah, and I mean, that's not a way to go either, you know. This yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. It's finding that balance. Right. You right. know. <laughs> yep, Well, absolutely. I've got to head out because okay. I've yeah. actually got some errands to run before I have to go back to my kids' school. <laughs> Because I do science lab, and <laughs> isn't that funny? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> uh, thanks so much for running the boards and everything. And um, oh, I no really, problem, no problem. I'm, I'm looking forward to anything that you might have. In fact, if I could have the um, the review that you posted already, if yeah. I could repost that. Oh, yeah, totally, that, totally. I can do that a little bit later this morning. I'll just copy and paste it. And I'll look and see if I have anything on my blog or a couple other places I blog that I know I can repost. Mm-hmm. I'll pull mm-hmm. those so you can have a couple things. And then um, as as we get the process going for the screening we're going to do here, I'll blog about that as well. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So- Great. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Oh, All right. Good. Take care. <laughs> okay. Have a well, good day. Well, I'll talk to you later. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Bye.